So Matthew chapter 23, and um, Matthew chapter 23 is that section of Matthew's gospel that contains the woes. You'll remember that uh, just chronologically, this is occurring Tuesday, probably Tuesday afternoon of the Passion Week. Jesus has come in on Sunday in the triumphal entry. He went into the city, took a quick look around the temple, left again on Sunday, and then came back on Monday, cleansed the temple, and then engaged in a series of confrontations with the leadership of the nation of Israel that occupied Monday and the beginning on Tuesday morning. And they came after him with all of their guns blazing, as it were, seeking to try to trap him into some kind of statement by which they could discredit him either before the people or perhaps even better before the Roman authorities and then they could haul him off on a charge of sedition and get him executed. Jesus met and bested them verbally at every single one of those challenges. In the end of chapter 22, he then turns to them, of course, and he asks them a question about the Messiah Whose son is he? And you remember that. They say he's David's son. And then he says, well, then how does David call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be David's son? And uh, Matthew records for us in verse 46 of chapter 22, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare to from that day on to ask him another question. So he silenced them. He swept the field. And then he began to pronounce upon the Pharisees and the scribes, that is, the, those that were responsible for, for the, the protection of the Scriptures, those that were responsible for the, for the transmission of the Scriptures, those that were responsible for the teaching of the Scriptures, if I can say it this way, those that embodied the heart of what Judaism had become at that time, he begins this series of most frightful woes, denunciations upon them. And this is the last salvo from the Messiah. When he finishes with these eight woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees and through them calling out to the nation at large, to make their choice, to turn, to come to him. He finishes it and pronounces judgment on the entire apostate system of Judaism. This is a very serious, very significant turning point in Matthew's gospel and, yea, in the history of the nation of God's chosen people. In a couple of weeks we will be getting to Matthew chapters 24 and 25 called the Olivet Discourse. And it, that section of Scripture, I know some of you have been, uh, been sort of uh, really looking forward to getting there, and I'm looking forward to getting there as well, but it's a section that is going to require us to think carefully together, and so uh, we'll need to take a, a good long running start at that. But before we do that, let's finish here in Matthew chapter 23. And what I'd like to do, since we've been gone from it for a couple of weeks, is I'd like to come to you and read verses 13 through 33, the eight-part indictment of the religious system of Israel embodied in the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Wow. Can you just imagine being there with his eyes of flame, with a whip of cords by which he had driven out the merchants? How for the last two days he has not permitted anyone to use the temple mount as a cut-through 
The king has come in to his temple. He has exercised his sovereign dominion. And he has rendered his verdict. They are bankrupt. They are bankrupt. He has given an eight-part indictment. I was going to review it with you this morning. I don't think I'll do that. I won't take the time to do that. Hopefully you've been here to hear those. Those messages are available online. If you've missed any of them, I suggest you go and listen. But I want to look with you this morning at the eighth and final indictment. The eighth and final indictment. They are guilty of persecuting God's spokesman. They are guilty of persecuting God's spokesman. Beloved, of all their crimes, this one is the capstone. This is the final. This is the, this is the height of their perversion, of their wickedness. Persecuting the spokesman of God. Jesus indicts them with persecuting God's spokesman and thus opposing God himself. Opposing God himself. And the seriousness of the charge is intensified by the reality that that they are hypocritically claiming to be spokesmen for God. Or to be, I'm sorry, to to be in support of the spokesmen of God. They are persecuting his prophets at the same time they are saying that if the prophets had been here, we would have supported them. This final indictment breaks down, I think, into two parts, two phases. The first of which is this. They are fraudulent in their piety. They are fraudulent in their piety. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our father, we would not have been partakers with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. The leadership of the nation of Israel had led the way in celebrating the prophets of old. To be a prophet of God is a hazardous occupation. Typically, one has a relatively short life expectancy. God is hard on his prophets and asks them to do all kinds of difficult things. First and foremost of which is to speak to his people and to confront his people with the error of their ways, with their departure from the law of God. As you read the prophets of the Old Testament, you will see that over and over and over again, that he calls them back to the covenant which they have strayed so far from. They pronounce judgment upon the people of God for their failure to live in obedience to the law of God. 
And then they often offer a small ray of hope for a future day that's coming for the people of God when they will finally follow Him as they should. But beloved, as you read through the Old Testament, what you find over and over and over again is Israel killed her own prophets. She slaughtered those that God had sent to them to speak to her about her waywardness. And now here we are with the scribes and Pharisees embodying the religion of their people. And they're holding national festivals to celebrate those that they had once killed. They're building, he says, they're adorning, they're building tombs and adorning the monuments of the righteous. We can understand what this would look like. We see some of the same thing in our own time, right? I mean, think about a Memorial Day celebration, right? We go and we honor the dead. We build monuments for the dead. We inscribe the names. We speak of their great sacrifice. We, we sort of gloss over any of their shortcomings, and we just speak of them with great terms of reverence. And Jesus says the scribes and the Pharisees are front and center of these kinds of memorial celebrations that are going on throughout the land of Israel. They're building the tombs of the prophets. They are adorning the monuments of the righteous. All the while, denying any guilt or complicity in the death of those prophets and righteous men. They're saying, listen, I can just see it as part of their speeches. If we had been there, how, how awful our ancestors were, if we had been there, we would have listened. We would not have done what they have done. We recognize these great men of God. We celebrate these great men of God. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Obadiah and on and on. We would not have done what our forefathers did. And everyone would politely clap. They would smile, and they would say, yes, that's right. That's right. If we'd have lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have done what they did. We get it. And yet, here's the hypocrisy of it all. They are right now opposing the greatest prophet that God has ever sent, his own son. They have already concluded that they are going to kill him. They are merely looking for the opportunity. He has just been engaged in a day and a half of the most intense spiritual hand-to-hand combat with the nation while they have sought to trip him up in one carefully conceived trap after another so that they might undo him, so that they might kill him. He says, woe to you. Woe to you. You make outward pretense that you are righteous 
that you would not have, have partaken in the sins of your forefathers, and yet right now you are engaged in the same thing, yea, something even worse. Because all of the prophets have pointed to me. I am your Messiah. I am your King. And you're seeking to kill me. Now, beloved, this is a historically bound event, to be sure. This is event bound to the lifetime of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the perversity that underlies this, the, the false piety, remains with us even today. Every time someone says, Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a good teacher. He was a good religious teacher. Jesus was a holy man. Jesus was the son of God. And yet refused to bow their knee to him in obedient faith, they, they are guilty of recapitulating the same awful sin of giving lip service to a prophet of God while at the same time seeking to undo him. Listen, Jesus is either a liar because he said he was the son of God. Or he was a lunatic, thinking he was God. Or he is Lord, Lord of all. Beloved, it can't be any other way. We, we, we cannot have him on our terms. He will only have us on his. Jesus himself declared that I am the way the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. With that statement, he declares all religious expressions other than Christianity to be false. Damning. A liar, a lunatic, or our Lord. Now as I think about the whole issue of false or fraudulent piety. When I think about it for too long, there's a certain uncomfortableness that begins to stir in my own heart. In working through all of these woes, it is so easy to point the finger, to say, how could they be so blind? How could they be so hard-hearted? How could they be in such opposition to the clear word of God? And then I stop. And I think. And I recognize that the, the seeds of a false piety lie in my heart too. Just waiting to germinate. Just waiting to manifest themselves. I mean, how often have you read the Old Testament and then sort of either out loud or at least to yourself thought, what is wrong with those people? Why don't they believe? 
Why do they, after God has shown himself to them over and over and over again, do they refuse him? Do they reject him? Do they doubt him? Do they question him? And then I stop and evaluate my own behavior and evaluate my own thoughts. And I think to myself, hmm, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. The seeds of doubt lie close at hand. A fraudulent piety is a risk that not just lay with the ancient people of Israel and their hypocritical leaders, it's a risk that lies with me. And beloved, it's a risk that lies with you. Have you ever found yourself murmuring against God and God's appointed leaders? You could fall in line with the people of Israel as they murmured against Moses. Have you ever been convinced that uh, you're going to die unattended and uncared for by God in this present wilderness in which you find yourself? You'd be in good company. Have you ever brought your sacrifice of praise while your heart was far from him? Have you ever coldly mouthed the words of a hymn? Had your mind take on a flight of fancy during a prayer or the reading of the word of God or the preaching of the word of God? Have you ever proclaimed your commitment to the word of God? That which was spoken by his prophets. And then when it contradicts what we want or comes to us in a hard place in life, we, we begin to doubt its truthfulness or its power or we flat out disregard what it has to say. We understand these temptations. It would be easy to, to, to prepare and preach a sermon that does nothing but hammer the ancient people and then go home so self-satisfied. Well, we might agree with this sitting here this morning, right? Yes, okay, you got me. Yeah, maybe I've remembered once. Doubted the word just a little. But I would never have denied Jesus. I would have never been part of the mob to call for his crucifixion. Oh, beloved. The Bible would say to us, do not underestimate the blackness of your own heart. Do not have such a high opinion of yourself.
We never outgrow our need for independence upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, do we? That's not just something that saves people somewhere along the way. And then we move on, we graduate to more important things, to bigger things, to deeper things. It is the power of God for salvation, a power we need every moment. Every moment. Unbelief always lies close at hand. Always. We need to become so captivated with the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is the only thing, the only thing that can cure our bouts with a false piety, with our doubts, with our fears. The second part of Jesus' indictment here of Israel's leadership It's not just that they are fraudulent in their piety. And by the way, he's calling out, as I say, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? But but through them, he's calling out the nation. All right, just be reminded, chapter chapter 23 and verse 1. Just take a look back there. I mean, we've been at this so long, so it's easy to forget. Right, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. He is talking to the nation. He is talking to the leadership, but he is talking to the nation. I mean, it was only just a couple of days before, right, where they came pouring out and Hosanna to the the son of David. Isn't that right? Welcome to the city, O king. They are just as fraudulent in their piety, just as fraudulent. But he goes on to say that they are not only fraudulent in their piety, but they are familial in their perversity. Familial in their perversity. In other words, they are following their father's sin. The word familial, it means related to or characteristic of a family. This is a family trait. Just like your father's. You are just like your father's, he says. Verse 31, so you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. I mean, in verse 30, the the Pharisees are trying to draw a distinction, right? They're saying, listen, our fathers did bad things, right? They shed the blood of the prophets of God. We wouldn't have done that. We're different than they are. And Jesus says, in reality, no, there's no distinction at all. You're not different than your fathers. You are descendants of your fathers, and it's more than just a physical descendant. You share a a common paternity. You have the same murderous obstinacy to God that they had. Like father, like son. 
you testify against yourselves, verse 31, that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. That expression, sons of, that's a, that's a Hebrew idiom. And, and what it means is that you share the same characteristics with. When it speaks of Jesus as the son of God, it's talking about him that he shares the common characteristics of deity. You are just like your father's. You are filled with hatred for God just like they were. And now you will follow in their same path. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Finish what your fathers have begun is another way of saying it. Finish what they have begun. Well, what did they begin? They began a pattern of, of obstinacy, of, of perversity, of, of opposition to God and his spokesman. Murdering them when it became intolerable to listen to them any longer. And they began to accumulate guilt for themselves. And the guilt began to grow. And it began to grow. And it began to grow. And you could think of it like a cup. Like a cup of wrath, actually. That is being filled progressively until it gets fuller and fuller and fuller until it will hold no more. And then it is poured out. They're going to arrange for his crucifixion in a matter of a couple of days. Verse 34 indicates that they will then persecute his followers. And a reading of the book of Acts tells us just that. They insanely pursued the apostles from city to city, seeking to put them to death. They would stick their fingers in their ears and and rant and rage and haul off Stephen and stone him. And the cup of wrath would get fuller and fuller and fuller. And eventually God would act with the most terrible judgment. The most terrible judgment. Beloved, the patience of God has limits. Did you know that? There are limits to the patience of God. There's only so much sin and unbelief and opposition that he will tolerate. We don't know where the limits lie. That's both with a culture and with an individual. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16, God appears to Abraham. You remember this? This is where he reaffirms the covenant with Abraham and they cut the animals in half and he, God puts Abraham to sleep, right? And the, this thing like a smoking oven passes between them. Do you remember that? And God says to Abraham in verse 16 of, of Genesis 15, I'm not going to turn you there, I'll just remind you of it. There's something really interesting. 
He says, you're going, to, you're going to go, you're going to leave this land that I've given to you, and you're going to go to Egypt, and you're going to sojourn in Egypt. And you're going to be in Egypt for 400 years because, because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. That means in God's sovereign plan, there are going to be 400 more years in which the, the inhabitants of Canaan are going to continue to rebel against their creator in increasingly gross, disgusting, and wicked ways until it rises to the point where not another drop can be held. And God will pour forth judgment upon them through Joshua and the people of Israel, and they will come in and they will destroy the inhabitants of that land. Men, women, and children. A society can reach a tipping point. We don't know where it is. But when it happens, judgment falls. Paul speaks in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5 about individuals storing up wrath for themselves. Beloved, every time a person turns from God, sticks his fingers in his ears, persists in his rebellion, drop by drop, the cup of wrath fills until someday it reaches its limit. And God exercises what the theologians call as judicial hardening. That is, he closes them off and takes them into judgment. It's a terrifying thing. The writer of the Hebrews says that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Today, when you hear his voice, You remember how it finishes? Do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Jesus is addressing the nation and its leadership. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Brood of vipers, they've heard that before. John the Baptist called them that, do you remember? About three and a half years earlier, when he was baptizing and the nation was coming out to him to be baptized by him in in preparation for the king, right? For the arrival of the Messiah. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in the presence of his king. And the leadership of the nation shows up to be baptized, and he looks at them and he says, Who warned you to flee the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? They had their chance. The nation had their chance, and they turned away. In Matthew 12, I'll just remind you, Verse 43, Jesus tells, makes this interesting statement about unclean spirits passing from out of a man through waterless places. 
I won't re-preach the passage, but it is so poignant as it relates to the nation. When John the Baptist preached and the nation came out, they swept the house clean, as it were. They put everything in order for the king to come. But when the king came, they did not invite him in. They did not fill the house. And so the demons returned and re-inhabited the nation. And the last state of those people was worse than the first. And that is exactly what has happened to the people of Israel. They swept the house clean, but when Messiah came, they rejected him. They attributed the work of the Spirit through him to the work of Satan himself. And Jesus says, there is nothing left for you, the unforgivable sin. And now he says in verse 33 of chapter 23, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Answer, you cannot. You cannot. Like blows of a hammer, the judgment will begin to fall. And beloved, it is a terrifying judgment. It is a judgment that is in continuance even to this day. Our Father, it is a terrifying thing to think about wrath being accumulated against this world, against individuals. People proceed along merrily, shake their fist in your face, spat upon you and your people, slaughter your prophets, crucify your son. And they say God doesn't hear, God doesn't care, God can't do anything, yea, is there even a God? And yet, like water in a pot on the stove, the temperature continues to rise. And the wrath continues to accumulate. O Lord, we know not when Christ will return. We desire his return, for for we desire an end of this wickedness. But at the same time, we recognize there is a wrath to precede the coming of the king. The wrath to come. And it will be terrifying. Our Father, as we live in this day and this age, or the opportunity to continue to speak about the mercy and grace of God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, remains with us. Will you help us to take those advantages?
Sustain your people. Do your good work. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.